0: There's an Anglican priest and, and fellow Christian that his name is Philip Hacking. He's actually a retired Anglican priest. And right now he does a little bit of itinerant speaking, uh, does a little bit, he does some traveling evangelism, things like that. And uh, Philip writes in his commentary on Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, he writes these words. Now, take your time and listen to what I'm saying. This is going to be really important for us today. Ritual seems very unimportant to most Christians today. And we are therefore relieved when we read Hebrews 9, 5b, which is the last half of verse 5 of chapter 9, to discover that the author has no time or space for further details on the furniture of the Jerusalem temple or the tabernacle. However, a little thought reminds us that even the most informal worship has its rituals, even to the extent of always repeating the last line of the latest chorus. While this insight seems trivial at first, if we pause for thought and reflection, we can see that hacking is actually touching on one of the deepest and actually most troubling issues facing the Christian faith of our time. You guys are going to maybe struggle today to see how I made this jump, but then hopefully by the end of the sermon, you understand completely how I made this jump from, from <clears throat> the scriptures into what I'm talking about today. The ritual of the sinner's prayer, followed by church attendance, is one of these rituals that we have. When I mean the sinner's prayer, I, I mean this thing that we feel like we have to get people to repeat. For instance, everybody do this with me. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me for my sins and come in my heart and save me. Amen. Now, if you said that prayer, you're born again. Not really. But that's what we teach. That's what we teach so much is this ritual of the sinner's prayer. If you say this prayer, you're born again. It's a ritual. It's a ritual that's part of so many churches in America. And then the ritual continues that you need to come to church and that you need to tithe and you need to pray and you need to do these things. Now, I want you to understand that I'm not saying that rituals in and of themselves are bad. I have a ritual every morning and you guys will thank me for it. I get up, I get in the shower, I clean up, I brush my teeth, and if you get close to me, you appreciate my ritual, amen? Okay? So I have these rituals that I do. Even in a non ritualistic, evangelistic, evangelical church like we are, we have rituals. I have never pastored a traditional church, but I I tell every church that I pastor in, in the sense of our non tradition is our tradition. We all have traditions and rituals that we get locked into. And some of these rituals are dangerous, dangerous, dangerous things. Is ritual like the sinner's prayer what God had in mind? Has God had in mind that repeat this prayer so that you can be in my kingdom? Is that really what God's looking for? Or is God looking for a personal, internal reformation in each person? So the question we're going to be dealing with today is ritual or reformation? Not reformation for the church. Reformation for you. Not a reformation of theology that we have to go back and scrap everything that the church has ever believed, but a personal, life-transforming reformation inside of you. Is that what God's looking for? Or is He looking for ritual? We're going to be reading today out of Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. So I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. You might be reading from a different translation. That's okay. They're all translations. It was very interesting the other other day. uh, Jeff showed me this really cool track, gospel tract from a, a church out in, I believe, Williamsport. Isn't that where the Little League World Series and all that stuff played or whatever? And he showed me this track, and it was really cool. And as I looked at the track, I immediately recognized that it was a King James Version-only church because of how they laid the track out. And sure enough, when I went on their website and looked at their statement of faith, the number one point of their statement of faith was that the King James Version of the Bible was the only authorized version that we could read as Christians. Above... There's one God who exists eternally in three persons who's infinitely perfect. Above Jesus Christ is our Savior. Above all of those things, the number one thing their church wanted you to know is you had to use the KJV. Now, listen, I'm not saying they're going to hell because they believe that. I'm just saying they're simply mistaken. A translation is a translation. Interestingly enough, and this is a side note as I go on, but, and, and then I'm going to get off of it real quick. If somebody tells you that you have to use the King James Version of the Bible... I want you to open their KJV Bible and look and see if the word of is spelled OV or if it's spelled OF. Just find an of on any page. And if it's an OF, they don't even use the King James Version of the Bible. They use the 1900 edition, not the 1611 edition. There was no F in the, in the alphabet at that point. So it's funny they make this demand that we use it. But, anyways, again, not to beat them up, I'm just saying they're all translations. That's why I say that every single week. There are people who are passionately tied to their translation of the Bible. You've got to use the ESV or you've got to use the NIV or you've got to use this or you've got to use that. Look, they're all translations. If you don't speak Greek for the New Testament or Hebrew for the Old Testament, get out multiple translations. Compare them side by side. See what they say so you can get a deeper understanding of the things because different translators have chosen different words. Amen? They've done their best. So I'm reading from the English Standard Version. The other way to say the English Standard Version is the New New King James. You had the King James, then it got updated, then you had the New King James, and the ESV is translated in the same fashion that the New King James and the King James were. All right, now that I'm done with my little rabbit trail, as John would say. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Holiness. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. And here's that verse that Hacking mentions. Of these we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing the ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood And drink and various washings, regulations for the body imprisoned, or excuse me, imposed until the time of reformation, ritual or reformation. It's a question we're going to be wrestling with today. Not an OCCA reformation, but an insert your name here, reformation. Let's pray, Father. We want to hear from you today. Everything that I have to say as the pastor of this church is really nothing, unless it comes from you. So Lord, I pray that you would strike from my mind anything that I'm going to say today that's not of you. Lord, I pray that you would bring forth anything to my mind that I'm going to forget to say that is what you want your people to hear. And Father, above all of that and beyond all that, I pray that we would wrestle with these things not, and, and not just accept them because pastor said but Lord, wrestle with them, read the scriptures, see if what I'm saying lines up. Because Lord, you won't contradict yourself. And We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Before I get into this, to the scriptures and or into preaching this, I just want to say one more thing. So important. Do not believe what I say simply because I say it. I believe that as a pastor and as an elder, I have authority inside of our church. But if that authority is from God, I'm not afraid to have it checked. That's why we give homework. There's a couple of reasons for homework. That's one of them. One of them is so that if you're not a regular Bible reader, we can get you in the habit of looking at the scriptures. That's why we give those six days worth of reading in, the, in there. But it's also to check to see if what I'm saying is right. You can challenge me on my theology. As a matter of fact, you're expected to if my theology is off. Amen? That's why we do that. So don't believe it just because I say it. All right, with that being said, the author of Hebrews starts this section by touching on some of the rituals of the Old Covenant. The first five verses point out the basic setup of the tabernacle, but then the author stops the description in verse 5b, which is the last half again. This is where Hacking says, we all breathe a sigh of relief and say, whew, I'm glad we didn't have to get caught up in all of that. Right? But let's give this some more thought. What does the author mean by saying of these things we can not now speak in detail? I mean, what's the author of Hebrews mean by that? One thing that is likely meant by the author of Hebrews is that the details of the ritual are not important. Instead, the simple fact that the ritual exists is what is important. Now, pastor, weren't you saying that God is maybe looking for reformation and not ritual? Well, I'm not trying to contradict myself here. I'm simply saying, as the author of Hebrews is making his point, it's not the details of the ritual that are important. He's trying to, he's not trying to get us caught up in the individual trees. He's trying to help us see the whole forest, of which these individual trees, these few individual trees, are representations. Some commentators have actually criticized the author of hebrews which is funny to me but they've criticized the author of hebrews description of the rituals here because they said certain pieces that he listed are in the wrong place now i don't know i believe that all scripture is god-breathed and useful for training and correcting right and so i'm like hmm it's interesting to to criticize the author of scripture when the author of scripture is ultimately god through that person i mean the scriptures teach us and this is either true or we need to go home and give it all up the scriptures teach us that that no prophet ever spoke on his own accord but each one wrote according to how the spirit of god carried them along so listen either that's true and every word of scripture every single word is inspired of god or it's not true, and we can't trust any of it. So it's either true, or it's not true, and we can't trust any of it. This is one of those all or nothing propositions. We either have to take all of Scripture or none of Scripture. And I know many of you are saying, but there's lots of churches that don't. I would suggest to you that those churches that don't take all of Scripture are actually taking none of Scripture because as soon as the Scriptures they take no longer agree with what they want to do, they're no longer going to take those scriptures. I know that sounds kind of crazy, but but this criticism comes at this. But you know it's not the details that are important. God is trying to point out to us that this is ritual that's going on here and this ritual exists and it's important. We know this because of what verse 6 says. Verse 6 says these preparations having thus been made the priests go into the first sec- regularly into the first section performing the ritual duties. See, I was tempted When reading over this passage of Scripture and to to try to figure out how I was going to preach through this passage, I was tempted to to preach some sermons on, on, on the individual things that were inside of there and what they meant. What did Aaron's staff budding mean? I mean, if you go into Numbers, you find out that Aaron's staff budding is a way for God to say that God's people should stop complaining against leadership. Go read in Numbers. That's what it's about. Or, or the manna being in there was God's provision in the wilderness. Or, or the tablets being in there, which are the Ten Commandments, is God saying, here's what you have to do to follow me. I was tempted to stop and go through all of those things. But if I did that, I had to take the focus off of what the author of Hebrews was trying to actually get us to see, which is not the significance of these individual things. I almost got caught up in the trees, looking at one tree. You know? But the author of Hebrews says, Now therefore, with all of this stuff being like this, the the priest goes in regularly to do the ritual duties. I mean, right there he says, Look, it's not about these details. It's about this this ritual thing that's going on here. These preparations having thus been made, the priest goes in regularly to the first section performing the ritual duties. However, it gets really interesting in verse 7. But into the second so this in the second section, the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Now I want to read that again to you with a little bit of uh, emphasis. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional Sins of the people. Is that enough emphasis? See, verse 7 states the ritual performed by the high priest is only sufficient for unintentional sins. I love this. I, I wish that they'd have invented this when I was a kid. I'd have done this all the time. Mind blown. I can't make that up. That's what that passage says. The rituals that we have as a body, they're only good for the unintentional stuff. They do no good when we are in open rebellion. Coming to church and and going through the ritual of attending service, it's no good when we are in open rebellion to our God. Saying the sinner's prayer is no good when we intend to continue to live our life as one who doesn't care what God says. I know this is harsh. Guys, a ritual can't transform anything. The ritual is impotent when it comes to transforming the person participating in the ritual. Everybody in this room this morning participated in the ritual of the sinner's prayer. This ritual that I believe when it was first created, when the first guy came up with this, it wasn't a ritual. He was trying to help somebody articulate to God what was going going on inside of their heart. But it's become a ritual. Go look at gospel tracts. At the end of the gospel tracts, most of the time it says, say this prayer. Now, if you said this prayer, you're going to heaven. What? But it says that. Go look at them. I, I can't make this up. It's trusting in the ritual for transformation. But the ritual only works for unintentional sins according to God's word. By the way, if you go read this back in the Old Testament, the author of Hebrews didn't just come up with this on his own. These were for the unintentional sins. It takes something completely different when we rebel against a holy God. It takes repentance. Repentance. It takes us going to God and saying, God, man, I need to get this thing right with you. I, I've rebelled against you. I mean, verses 8 through 10, By it goes on to explain this, but this Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot... Check this out. Cannot perfect the conscience. I'm going to let it sink in. I'm not pausing because I don't have something to say. They can't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. There's something very interesting right there. You can be a worshiper without having a personal reformation that's necessary to perfect your conscience. It doesn't say the rituals don't perfect the conscience of the bum who's sitting on the street rebelling against God. It says of the worshiper. There are a lot of people in this world who want to worship the God of the Bible And they've participated in a ritual. And we look at their life and we go, wow, something's off there. So much so that we've come up with this entire doctrine that is not biblical. It is anti-biblical, actually, that says we can't judge other people. It doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. It says that we cannot judge When we look at the the no judgment, it's talking about looking down our nose at people and condemning them. That's what it's talking about. Because there are other places, and this is why we know it doesn't say it anywhere in the Bible. Because Paul, talking to the church, says to the church about issues that are going on inside the church that we're taking it in front of the magistrates and all this, and we inside the church are supposed to judge. Jesus says that we will know people by their... Finish it for me. Fruits. Jesus said that there are people who would come who are outwardly his but inwardly are ravenous wolves. I can't look down my nose at Michelle and say Michelle is a big old bum and not worth God's time. That's that's what's forbidden. But I can look at Michelle and I can say, wow, Michelle is either a seeming to live for the lord or b not seeming to live for the lord or maybe c somewhere in the middle some things she is some things she isn't that's why as her pastor i go to her i encourage her i try to help her to grow in the faith i try to point those things out that's why you do it that's why in your micro groups that some of you have been participating in you're challenging each other you're you when you ask the questions the accountability questions if, if you're not in a micro group you it's okay but you ask the accountability questions. And you guys are judging one another in a scriptural, a scripturally sound way to stir one another up to good deeds and righteousness. This is what the Scriptures tell us. Let us stir one another up to good deeds and righteousness. How, how can we, we do that if we're not actually looking and saying, hmm, are there good deeds and righteousness? Right? Because there's over 200 people They call OCCA their home church. I have to stir people up. And so, you know, I might not be stirring up uh, Janet right now because Janet is doing the things that she's supposed to do. So I spend some time stirring up John Spriggs because John Smith's doing the right things too. But John Spriggs, not so much. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? We have to judge these things and, and... We have to come to this understanding that participation in a ritual does not a conscience perfect. But that's what we believe so much inside of the church in America. I went to church, I did my Christian duty, I checked my block. And I will see you guys next Sunday when I do my Christian duty again and I check my block. i mean one of the things that i am becoming that i've always been really passionate about even before i was your pastor and i'm becoming even more passionate about and more assertive about is the prayer meeting next sunday the prayer meeting goes back to 8:45 in the morning listen to me get involved in it i prayed this sunday morning that if our prayer meeting shrinks that our church shrinks and we go bankrupt and i mean it and then we close it all down. But if, our, but if it grows, that God will show up. That, that God will work in direct proportion to us seeking him. Not a ritual of prayer. But us having a reformation inside of each one of us that says, I want to pursue Jesus. 35 or 40 people prayed that prayer with me and nobody got up and said, Blasphemy. But everybody said amen. Why is ritual, why is this so important to understand the difference between ritual and reformation? Ritual can never transform the inner man, it only deals with the outside. The necessary inner transformation happens via an alternate route. Look at the last half of verse 9. I've talked a lot about this. The sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Your church attendance cannot fix your conscience. It cannot restore your relationship with Jesus. Your tithe cannot do that. Your attendance at prayer meeting cannot do that. Your attendance at training ground cannot do that. Your involvement in a small group cannot do that. Your involvement in a micro group of two to three people cannot do that. No amount of listening to the preacher on the radio can do that. No camp can do that. No conference can do that. The rituals won't do anything to perfect the conscience. But the funny thing is about these rituals is that if our conscience is perfected, we're involved in the rituals not as a means to fixing our conscience, but because God is speaking to us and He speaks to us about worship and He speaks to us about seeking His face in prayer and coming to church and being involved in small groups. And He leads us many times to go to this camp or to go to that conference or to do these things. And so the confusion comes in so many times because the end result of both things, the outward manifestation looks the same. This is where it gets really scary. God wants to have a great reformation, and in order for in order to experience a personal reformation, we must first abandon our attachment to ritual. I want to explain biblical legalism to you, not legalism that we talk about in the twentieth century, which isn't what Jesus was coming against. A church saying that we're going to live a certain way or that we're going to receive tithes and offerings or that this is the conduct of a Christian, what a Christian's conduct should look like, is not legalism that Jesus was talking about. Legalism that Jesus was talking about all throughout the Gospels was the Pharisees believing that if we do the rituals correctly, the righteousness comes with it. If I pray the right way, If I'm careful to tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and they would take that tithe of those herbs, and they would knock them out into the air, that's God's portion. If I'm careful to do all of these things, my conscience is perfected. Not if I'm careful to be, not I want to be holy because God is holy. We think that anybody who wants holiness in their life, well, they're just being legalistic. No! It's not legalism to want to please God, to want to follow God, to want to obey Him. I, I don't post a lot of preacher stuff on Facebook. But I posted something from Victoria Osteen this week, and Bill Cosby got involved in it, though he didn't know he got involved in it, where, she, where Victoria Osteen stands on a stage and she tells everybody, thousands of people in this church, she's telling them, when they go home this week to obey God, not because God wants obedience, but because God wants you to be happy and you're going to be most happy when you obey him. And it's all about your happiness. And, the, and this clip at the end that's added in is Bill Cosby as Cliff Huxtable standing up and goes, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I mean, Victoria Osteen's taking what I'm saying a little too far. Maybe a lot too far. If I'm in a relationship with God, if I've had reformation in my life, I want to live the way God says I should live. We're guilty of the legalism as an individual, not as a body, as an individual, when we go to church and we check our Christian block. It's not so bad up in the north. It's worse in the south, in the Bible Belt. You say, well, what kind of church background do you have? Well, I'm a Christian. Really? What kind of church background? Well, when I was 10 years old, I went forward and shook the preacher's hand. And Grandma goes to church, so that makes me a Christian. I went through I mean, here, let me translate it into northern speak. Well, I went through the ritual they told me to go through, and so I'm good. This is legalism. This is biblical legalism saying I followed the ritual, the pattern that I was told to follow, and I'm good to go. But I I got a question. The scriptures say at one point, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, it doesn't say therefore, if anyone wants to be in Christ, therefore, if anyone went through the ritual of the sinner's prayer, it says therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. That's a reformation. That's when I didn't pray a prayer as a ritual. But I had a personal reformation. Let me just show you how ridiculous these rituals really are. If you were in a fight with your husband or wife, and I intervened in it as your pastor, and we're in my office and we're talking... And I looked at you, and I'm going to use Keith and Tina as an example because I need to chunk somebody's name in here, not because they're really fighting, yet. <laughs> you will be after this. No, I'm just kidding. And, and Keith, we've, I've explained to Keith what a thug he was in the whole thing and how he, how he treated Tina so badly. And Keith's like, okay, okay. And I said, now, Keith, look at Tina and say, Tina, Tina, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to hurt you. I didn't mean to hurt you. I did this and this and this. I did this and this and this. Would you please forgive me? Would you please forgive me? Tina might, because we're in the ritual, out loud say yes. But inside, she's saying, if you really meant this, Jerry wouldn't have to walk you through it. Right? Jerry wouldn't have to tell you how to say sorry if you were really sorry. I would I would know what would you would you would be weeping and you would be there would be sincerity coming out. Somebody wouldn't have to walk you through this ritual of, of of apologizing to me. But like when it comes to the sinner's prayer, like all of a sudden we think people are stupid and we have to tell them how to say sorry. And we give people false hope. My wife in 1996 stood up at, at a church and said the sinner's prayer because the pastor of that church, this is before I was a preacher, said, say this prayer and you'll go to heaven. For years afterwards, every night before she went to bed, she said the prayer again so that she could go to heaven just in case she died in her sleep. She was trusting in a ritual because somebody... Well meaning, did not intend to mislead her, told her, trust the ritual. But the ritual only works for unintentional things. My wife was in rebellion to God. Many years later, she was at our house, she was doing some cleaning around the house, and the Lord spoke to her and said, You know, you never were really sorry. I was already a pastor when my wife got saved, had been for a few years. Every time she found out that myself and the associate pastor were praying for her salvation, she would get mad because she'd done the ritual. I came home one day to a transformed woman who had a personal reformation and I never prayed for her salvation since that day. If holiness is not flowing out of your life in increasing measure, Nobody's perfectly holy. I mean, positionally we are because we're in Christ, but I'm talking about our everyday actions. Nothing's perfect for any of us, including me. Amen? Okay? But if you're not having personal holiness increase in your life out of the relationship that you have with God, I want to warn you of something. You are probably not saved if you went through the ritual prayer and you did what the preacher told you to do or the Sunday school teacher or the this or the that and there's been no radical reformation or transformation inside of your life and you know whether there has or not nobody has to tell you judge yourself okay you're probably not saved The ritual only works for those things that you have no clue about. Right? So when we go through the ritual of the sinner's prayer, God is forgiving us when we, when we really have a heart knowledge of it, and we really apologize to Him, we really ask Him to be our Savior, we really swear to follow Him. God forgives us for past, present, and future sins. Especially those ones that we don't even know are sin yet, because there's a lot of stuff in Scripture that, that says is sin, and we don't know it all the day we give our life to the Lord. And the ritual is good for those, but when we get to those, and God brings conviction, we have to stop those things. I know some people are thinking, well, that sounds a whole that sounds pretty legalistic. But guys, I'm saying the ritual of the sinner's prayer, or any other church attendance, or anything, it can't clear your conscience. It cannot perfect your conscience. Now, I want to say this again before we go on. I'm not saying that the sinner's prayer is bad. If someone really understands what they're doing, really has a heart understanding of what they're doing, it is great. But at that point, it's no longer a ritual. It has become a pathway to relationship. The understanding of what's going on inside of the person switches it from a mindless ritual to a pathway to relationship. When people truly understand, they don't need a repeat-after-me prayer. I can't tell you the last time I led somebody in a repeat-after-me prayer before I did it with all of you today. I never lead somebody in a repeat after me prayer and I want to encourage you before you do it again to ask God should you I ask them to pray out loud and I ask them start it off with dear god the rest of it'll come if you're really ready if you really understand and then I listen to them and I pray with them and I pray god help me to see if they've understood what i've said by the things that they're praying to you. I'm seeking kind of feedback from them. I'm looking for their amen, but in their own words. Do they really get what I've explained? And there have been times when people have prayed that prayer, and they get done, and I go, you don't feel any different or anything. Nothing, nothing feels like it's changed, has it? And they're like, yeah. And I said, it's because somewhere in here, something disconnected, let me explain some more stuff to you real quick. And I'll go back through it because I want to hear what they say. Okay, it's, it's kind of like the art of asking an open-ended question. It's kind of like, do you love Jesus or do you want to go fishing? Like that's a trick question that, you know, it's not open-ended. You have two choices, right? What do I say? But what if I say, now, Jesus loves people who fish. How can you love Jesus through fishing? And you say, oh, well, da 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 and you go through this whole thing, and it's seeking for you to explain that back to me, right? Or, or, or I say, do you, love, do, you, do you understand the biblical principle of tithing? Yes. And what they think is, yes, I understand that you're telling me that I have to give 10% of my money to the church every month. If they would put it back in their own words, I'd go, oh, they don't understand it. The biblical principle of tithing is not about giving 10% every month. That is the manifestation of, God, I trust you. See what I'm saying? You let them come back in their own answers. It's it's not about the ritual. I mean, this goes, you know, I'm using tithing as an example. There are people who give 10% of their money to the church month after month after month who aren't tithing. People are like, wait, I thought a tithe was 10%. Yeah, but they're doing a ritual without an understanding. By the way, there are no people anywhere in the world who are giving less than 10% who are tithing. The word means one-tenth. So you can't... People say, well, I I do trust him, so therefore I don't have to give him anything. I'm tithing. James says, you tell me you have faith, I'll show you my faith by what I do. So, but anyway... But we have to abandon the attachment to ritual. Church attendance. We have to abandon this attachment to church attendance. And come to church because we want to. Come to church because we want to spend time with other believers glorifying God. Pursuing Jesus Christ. Hearing the proclamation of his freedom, his healing, his life. We want to serve him. We want to love him. We want to worship him. And by the way, I know in a lot of, probably 90% of you are better. I'm preaching to the choir. You get this already. Okay, so I'm not beating you up. How we dress. I know for a fact. There are some of you who want to choke me because I wear jeans and especially because I leave my shirt untucked. Because you're attached to a ritual that the preacher needs to be in a suit and tie. If we're going to attach to a ritual, then let's do it to the biblical ritual. Next Sunday, robes all around and sandals. Right? Yeah, and we're going to come to church on Saturday because Saturday's the Sabbath. Sunday's the Lord's Day. They're different. The songs we sing. Oh, well, I just, I just, I'm not into it today because, boy, the songs just didn't do it for me. I want to tell you, Palmer Zerby. I love Palmer Zerbe. He's a crazy old man. I can say that now because he's no longer the district superintendent. he was the ds before i came into the district and he was talking to a, a, a worship leader at one of our alliance churches in western pa who was having some struggles with some people getting angry over the worship music over the choices of song selections and it wasn't what they wanted to hear sung and palmer said to him to this brother he said brother i can come down there and straighten them out if you want me to he said but let me tell you what's going on so you understand They don't worship during the week. The only time they worship is during the ritual on Sunday. Which is why the ritual on Sunday has to be all about them. Which is why they're upset about the music. Because they don't sing praises to God any other time. Because the ones who do, and he said, I guarantee you, you talk to them. The ones who do spend time worshiping throughout the week... It's all good what happens on Sunday. Ah, so my favorite song didn't get sung this week. No big deal. There's always next week. Right? But see, we get into the ritual of song. So much so, what if I said from now on, we're going to do one song, then we're going to do the preaching, and then we're going to go home. Or I said we're going to do no songs. Would we be upset? Are we attached to that ritual? The song The Heart of Worship came because a very large church, their pastor said, no more singing. singing's become a ritual. It's no longer us worshiping God. No more singing. And, and I can't remember, whoever wrote Heart of Worship, I want to say it was Matt Redmond, I could be wrong about that. Whichever person it was that wrote Heart of Worship was the worship leader at that church. And that song came as a result of months of silence in the church when it came to singing. I'm coming back to the heart of worship where it's all about you. It's all about you. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I made it when it's all about you. It's all about you. See, they abandoned ritual and instead said reformation. Bring reformation. And one of the most beautiful worship songs of our time came out of that. Abandonment of ritual in lieu of reformation. No, no, you know what I meant. That wasn't right. Our order of service. I guarantee you, Mark and I are so tempted for the order of service to become a mindless ritual. I've led worship. This is the first time, 12 years in the ministry. This is the first church I've not been the worship leader at least every other Sunday in, or the band leader. And let me tell you something. It is so easy, amen, Mark, for that to become a ritual, like a mindless ritual. It's really, I mean, and thank God that I have a wife, and I'm sure Mark does this as well with Phyllis, who says, hey, it's kind of getting ritualistic. is so easy or we've got the ritual of training ground and so training ground runs from labor today to memorial day and so in the summer we're not being discipled i know some of you were being discipled during the summer but some of you took three months off from jesus that's kind of a ritual. And I could go on and on and on. But we have to abandon these attachments to ritual and say, no, Lord, I want reformation instead inside of my life. See, the spiritual reformation that we need can only happen via a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you cannot get into that relationship via a ritual, it cannot clear your conscience, it cannot perfect your conscience. It cannot bring you into this saving thing. Let me give you an example. It might look like it does. How many people do you know went through the ritual of a marriage ceremony only to see their marriage end within months? If we get honest, we see that way too much. Amen? They went through a ritual. Ritual. No personal reformation. And believe me, when you get married, reformation has to happen. Right, guys? You can't do it your way anymore. Amen? You women don't understand that as much because we're still doing it your way. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. People are starting to get that joke now. But listen, we can go through all kinds of rituals but they're not good for transforming us. I'm not going to preach this week on, on on the reformation. That's the subject of next week's message. The goal for today is that you would abandon ritual. let me explain to you that that does not look like that you stop coming to church that does not look like that you stop praying that does not look like that you stop reading your bible that does not look like that you stop listening to your favorite preacher on the radio that does not mean that you stop listening to the preacher that you like on the tv that does not mean that everything in life that you've been doing, you give up. It means that I say to myself and you say to yourself, these rituals can't do anything for me. God has to do a reformation inside of me. And so, like the song we sang two weeks in a row, here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Speak what is true. Reform me. Let me give it to you for those of you who aren't up on the newest songs that are out there. Holiness, holiness, holiness is what I long for. Holiness, holiness is what I need. Holiness, holiness is what you want from me. So take my heart and form it. Take my mind, transform it. Take my will, conform it to yours. To yours, O Lord. When it comes to reformation, he is the potter and we are the clay, and we have no right to look at him and say, make me into an ashtray when he wants to make us into a big flower vase. Make me into a coffee mug when he wants to make us into a wash basin make me into this or that or the other thing reformation is all his doing except for the fact that we say i'm clay put me on your wheel and spin me okay. this is what we're this is what we're talking about ritual versus reformation will you abandon the attachment to ritual I want to close with this thought, and then I'm going to show you the homework. Evangelicals, of which I am one, are the Pharisees of the 21st century. To be called a Pharisee in Jesus' time was not an insult until Jesus made it one. It was a compliment. They were the religious elite. They were the ones who understood the scriptures and were the teachers for everybody. Kind of sounds like how we view ourselves as evangelicals, doesn't it? We understand the scriptures and we need to go out and evangelize the world and teach them those things. We're the Pharisees. I'm not criticizing you. We watched a video about Samaritan's Purse and Operation Christmas Child. Samaritans in biblical times weren't good people. They were atheists. They were godless. Some of these illustrations have been lost on us because it's been so long. Another example, the cross never appeared in artwork, would not be hanging on our wall until after everybody who had ever seen one actually used in real life was dead. It's like us putting an electric chair up on the wall. It's the most cruel torture device ever invented. We are the Pharisees. The liberal churches, those are the Sadducees. That's what the Sadducees were. They were the liberals. And Jesus said neither one quite had it right we have to abandon our attachment to rituals. Not saying those things won't happen sometimes, but when reformation's there, then the ritual is evidence of the relationship. Homework for this week so that you can check on me and see if I'm full of it or not. For those of you who haven't seen homework before, it's intentionally spelled with an N because it is about sharpening our sword which is a very biblical illustration, the sword is. It's an invitation to join the battle. Pick up your sword and get in the spiritual fight. An invitation to join the battle. And the sword is the word. Monday, Mark 7, 1 through 15. Tuesday, Acts 10, 9 through 23. And Wednesday goes closely with it because you have to finish Wednesdays to understand the whole thing for the Acts passage. Acts 10, 24 through 43. Thursday, Romans 2, 17 through 29. Friday, Colossians 2, 8 through 15. Saturday, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. All of these homeworks for the week show rituals are not enough. But they also show that we are prone to trust in rituals even during New Testament times. Hence, all the warnings about not trusting in them. These are all about rituals not being enough. But all out of the New Testament and all warnings or a story about showing how the ritual didn't work. The, maybe one of the difficult ones you're going to see is that whole Acts passage because it's going to be about Peter being up on a rooftop. Vision. All this food's lowered down. Vision says, rise, kill, and eat. Peter wants to trust the ritual. I've never let anything unclean pass my lips. Right? And you'll get the rest of the point from there as you read on. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we ask you to help us through this very difficult thought process of, of abandoning ritual. Lord, I, I got to be honest with you. I like some of our rituals, I like singing worship songs. I like preaching i like discipleship i I like seeing people involved in those things but father i pray that you would first start in pastor jerry to abandon the attachment to ritual that i that i won't be that i won't care about getting people involved in the ritual but instead i will be such a leader that can help people to get involved in a personal reformation Lord, like we sang last week at the beginning of the service and the week before at the end of the service, here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart. Here is my heart. Speak what is true. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, amen.